But if you have your Bible, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians 8. We are continuing in our series on the letter to the, first, uh, to the Corinthians. And if you have been with us for the past few weeks or since the beginning of this series, you will remember that the people to whom Paul was writing were very unchurched. They were very unchurched society, to put it uh, nicely. There were faithful Christians who were in the church of Corinth, but there were many who were struggling and doing profoundly messed up things. And we like to point the finger at the Corinthians, but I think if we were a little honest and looked at our modern church as well, we wouldn't be, uh, we'd be a little embarrassed because a lot of the things that he talks about are things that we find in the modern church as well. The city of Corinth was known well for its vices. There was a Greek word that was used to describe someone who lived a lustful lifestyle, and that word in English would be Corinthianized. You were living a Corinthianized lifestyle, and that's to act like somebody who was living in the city of Corinth. Right? We've just seen over the last few weeks, marriage was a joke, divorce was rampant, and there was no shame <clears throat> in visiting prostitutes. Prostitution was part of temple worship. This was a daily thing that was happening in Corinth. So the Apostle Paul, if you remember, especially back when we were in the book of Acts as well, he goes to the city of Corinth, he preaches the gospel, people respond to the gospel somehow because God is amazing, and then they come to saving faith. But then what happens? They have lots of questions They have all kinds of questions. I said this a few weeks ago. When you compare the book or the letter of 1 Corinthians to the letter to the Romans, they're drastically different books. Because the letter to the Romans is a a very beautifully theologically written book that is basically like a systematic theology for the early church and for us. And 1 Corinthians, it's not just a rebuke, but 1 Corinthians is answering a lot of questions to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul first. And he is now answering all of those things. We saw that starting in 7, right? Now concerning these questions on uh, the questions that you have written. So when we read these questions, they may seem strange. Like, don't you know the answer to that? That's a really basic question that you are asking. But again, we have to remember. This was a very unchurched group. There was no Christian history in Corinth. There was nobody, hey, my great-great-grandmother left me a Bible. I know a little bit about some faith. It was all new to them. They had no Christian heritage. The Corinthian church was vastly different than the church that was found in Jerusalem. Because if you think of it, the Jerusalem church was primarily made up of Jews. And Jews have a shared uh, morality as Christians. They apply the moral law that is found in the Old Testament scriptures. But not so with the church in Corinth. They allowed the culture to shape their morals. And so when they encountered Jesus Christ, they asked questions like, well, since we live in such a sexually charged culture, should Christians then just abstain from sex altogether, including in marriage? Oh, okay, I'm saved now, but my husband or my wife isn't. Now that I'm a Christian, should I just divorce my spiritual dead weight because they're not a believer and move on in joyful bliss with the Lord? And Paul says, no, you shouldn't do that. That's not the proper response as a Christian. We detailed that just a few weeks ago. So they had many questions like that that we kind of go, what? That makes no sense. But these were real big questions for them. And when we understand the culture of which they were coming out of, it makes a lot of sense of why they're asking these questions. They're not looking for loopholes. 
Some of them probably were. I'm sure there's loophole lookers there. But, but generally, they were, they were trying to reconcile what they have always believed and now what Christ has called them and how, they have, how he has called them to live in light of the gospel. So what they're essentially asking is, what does it mean to be a Christian and to live in the midst of a very worldly, wicked, secular society? We could ask that same question today, couldn't we? When we look at the culture of Corinth, it's not much different than the culture of Canada. We live in a post-Christian nation, meaning we were a Christian nation. I'm using quotes on purpose before. The church held moral authority in the culture. Your neighbor used to look at you when you were a Christian and say, oh good, he's not going to steal from me. He's not going to hurt me. Now when your neighbor finds out you're a Christian, they go, oh, what a bigot. I don't want to live next to this guy or this girl. It has shifted. It has changed. We live in a post-Christian nation. When I talk to people on the streets of Drumheller, I meet individuals who have never heard the name of Jesus in a saving way. In Drumheller, Canada, they're out there. We live in a post-Christian nation. So we as a church as well need to be ready for very that might seem simple and funny to us, but very profound questions from the culture around us about how to live a Christian life when they come to saving faith as well. So the questions they had, uh, they had lots of questions. We don't have the specific list of questions they had or what they were asking, but I like to think of 1 Corinthians like this. It's like thinking about a phone call, right? We've all been in a room or in the car when somebody else is on the phone. You can't hear what the other people on the other line is saying, but you can hear what the person in the room that you're sitting with is saying. So, and you can pretty much deduce what those questions are or what the conversation is about by just listening to the conversation that's happening around you. And that's kind of like what's happening with 1 Corinthians. We don't have their questions, but we have Paul's side of the phone call. And we can kind of figure out what they were struggling with and what they were having questions. And really, their questions that they're asking are the modern-day equivalent of, like, could Christians get tattoos? Can Christians drink alcohol? Can Christians get their ears pierced? Can Christians go see rated R movies? And et cetera, and et cetera. The list can go on and on. We have questions. What does it mean to be a Christian in the midst of a society and culture that is so far from God? What is permissible for me? What is permissible for you? And what is not? Now, the issues in Paul's day, as I said, are going to seem strange. But again, it's the equivalent to all those things. Can I go see an R-rated movie? Should I be doing this? Should I be watching that? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through the text. I'm going to change up how I preach a little today just to keep you guys awake. We're going to read through the text. I'm going to make a few observations. And then we're going to, we're going to deduce from the principle of the text four questions to help you and I to think through making decisions on things that maybe are in gray areas of life. So we're going to help we're going to aim to better understand what is and what isn't permissible for us as Christians. So chapter 8, which we're about to read, is the beginning of Paul's argument that won't be completed until chapter 11 verse 1. So we're going to be on this subject for a couple weeks now of what is permissible, what's not. What how do I use my rights? How don't I exercise my rights? Because here's the argument that Paul is going to make. In Christ, we have been given freedoms. We have been set free. We have certain amounts of liberties in Christ, and we can exercise those liberties, but with caution. I always say with wearing a seatbelt. 
right? We can exercise those with caution. Just because you have freedom to do something, Paul's going to say, doesn't mean that you should do it. Doesn't mean that you should exercise that right. Christians shouldn't just use their liberties to try to trample on other Christians to get ahead of them or try to mass your sin. So many Christians use, well, I'm free in Christ to do this. No, you're sinning. You just don't want to deal with it. So he starts in chapter 8 answering their questions on meat sacrifice to idols. That's something that we maybe don't struggle with much, but you go to different cultures in the world, this is still a very big question. And then in chapter 9, he's going to get personal. He's going to talk about, he's going to bring it about his right to be paid by the Corinthians. Now, he doesn't want to be paid by the Corinthians, but the Corinthians want to pay him. We're going to talk about why next week. But he's going to use this as an example to the Corinthians. Like, hey, I have this right too to be paid by you, but doesn't mean I should exercise that right. He's making it personal. Then he's going to get to chapter 10, where he's going to bring back and answer a lot of the questions that he's raising here in chapter 8 on idols and, and idol worship and whatnot. And then he ends the whole argument before moving on to the Lord's Supper and other things in 11. And he says, imitate me as I what? As I imitate Christ. And the question that we'll ask there is, can you say the same about your life? So with that, let's jump in to chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It won't be on the screen, uh, so please be in your Bible and be following along. I'm still back in my Psalms text, so just give me a second to flip there. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Now concerning food offered to idols. So again, we keep seeing since chapter 7, this now concerning. He's answering their questions. So he's switching gears. He's moving away from marriage and singleness and divorce, and he's moving on to their next question. So there's a question about, can we eat meat that is sacrificed to idols? Is it permissible for a Christian to eat this meat? And he says, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, your Bible might not have it, but it should. It should have quotations there because he's quoting their letter. He's picking up their vocabulary. The Greeks love their knowledge. We have detailed this. The Greeks gave us philosophy. He says, we know that we all possess this knowledge, but this knowledge that you have puffs up, but love builds up. Meaning, this knowledge makes you arrogant and proud, but love builds you up and builds the, culture, the, the society around you up. So here's what he's saying. Knowledge separated from love just makes you an arrogant jerk. But when your knowledge is connected with love, then you become a blessing to the community, to the people around you. Now notice he hasn't specifically answered their question yet. But instead, he is setting the table. Paul is a master at setting the table for his current argument and future arguments. He's saying, let me just remind you, church, before we delve into this conversation of what's permissible and what's not permissible as Christians, can we just talk about this great Christian virtue of love? for a moment. What is he doing? Is he setting the stage for our rights that are anchored and tempered by love? And he's actually setting the stage for chapter 13, where he brings a rebuke about love. And we like to read that at our weddings, but it's actually a rebuke. But we'll get there when we get there. Pick up in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the, the first the chapter, or sorry, verse 2 is a little confusing, right? But what he's saying is just because you might know something 
on a certain subject doesn't mean you are, uh, you know, everything on that subject. Stay humble. You're always going to learn. Chapter, the verse 3, though, is where he's pointing us. This is what he wants you to know. That those who are known by God, those who are recognized by God, are people who love God. Not just casual cultural Christians who attend church just because it's the thing to do, but people who actually love God. So again, he's emphasizing the fact for uh, there's this Christian characteristic that is love, and it will and should permeate all of who you are and what you do. Verse 4, it says, Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols, we know that, again, quotes, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So there's these guys saying, well, there's only one God, so it doesn't matter, right? Like that, like, isn't that right, Paul? We know there's only uh, no real existence, there's only one God, and, and so Paul says in verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods, lower G, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what he's saying is, you're right, there is only one God, and there is no power in the idols that that meat was sacrificed to. But then he says in chapter 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. He's saying that there are some new Christians in our midst, the weaker brethren he'll get to in a minute, who believe in Jesus as Lord, who have surrendered their life to him, but are still influenced by their former way of life. They're being discipled. We don't expect disciples to know everything right on the first day. And he's saying they're still being mastered by these false gods to some degree. And they might be influenced and defiled. Right? He says food will not, in verse 8, not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do, but... Take care that the right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And here's where it gets serious. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. What is he saying? He's saying they're still formable here. They're still sensitive to the things of this world here. And by you eating could lead them to eat and fall back in to idol worship. And he says in 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What a statement. And he's going to detail that more in chapter 10, so I'm not going to make too much definitive statements today on these words. But okay, so in Paul's day though, the burning question is this. Can Christians eat meat that is sacrificed to idols? The issue wasn't the meat, right? The issue wasn't the menu. The issue is the venue, okay? So before all of you vegans and vegetarians get excited, we got to know the context of what's happening. Just picture this with me. You're a Christian living in Corinth, living in a city that is idolatrous, and you've now been saved out of that idolatrous lifestyle where you've worshipped a, worshipped a plethora of gods all your life, and then you meet Jesus, the only true living God. And now you have some questions. Think of it. 
you're hungry one day. You have a few extra coins in your pocket because meat wasn't something you ate every night. And you go, hmm, I could go for a steak right now. Your tummy's grumbling, but then you have this thought, well, if I go to my local butcher, I know that that local butcher took some of that meat, he sacrificed it to idols, and he prayed over it so God, the, the gods would bless his business and his family. Or he has meat left over from a temple worship practice, and now he's reselling it. But the case is that this meat has been blessed by the gods for a specific purpose. Should I be eating this stuff? I mean, it's wicked meat. Should Christians be eating wicked meat? Is that wrong? And Paul's response is, let's get theological for a moment. The meat in and of itself is not the problem. God owns the meat. God created the meat. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. As far as what is right from wrong, though, Paul says, okay, we need to think some things through. You, Christian, you need to think, think some things through. Not somebody else. We love to run to other people to do our thinking for us, but you need to internalize this and do some thinking today. So this really is, is, should I get the tattoo? Should I get the body piercing? Should I drink that glass of alcoholic beverage? Should I be watching these R-rated movies, etc., 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 etc.? What's allowable and what's not? It's no secret today that Christians are divided on these subjects. It divides us. And really, there's two extremes. There's two really extreme categories, and that's the first one. You know, on one hand, you have the camp that is completely restrictive. No, none of these things ever. If you even think the name Harry Potter, you're going to hell. Oh, you guys weren't raised in the 90s? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> none of these things ever. Then on the other hand, you have the camp that's like, it's totally unrestrictive, dude. You have Christian freedom. Do whatever you want. God doesn't care as long as you're happy. But we always have to ask the question as believers, what do the scriptures say? How do we allow scriptures to be our guide in these things? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some helpful guidance by giving you four questions that I think will provide good guidance for all of us to think through these issues. I'm not going to stand up here and do your thinking for you. I'm not going to say yes to this, no to that, yes to this, but no to that in these gray areas. I want to disciple you to have a mind that is biblically informed and orientated by the word of God so you can make proper decisions that are in line with the conscience that God has given you. So when facing something that you're unsure you should be doing, the first question you should ask, helps if I turn that on, is does it violate the Bible? Does it violate the clear teachings of God's word? What does the Bible say? What do the scriptures teach? Because here's the thing about the Bible. It speaks to all people through all generations and all times and in all places. And the Bible is very, very clear on many subjects. You might think, well, like what? Well, many of our pressing issues of the day, it's very clear on. It's clear on controversial issues. The Bible is very clear on gender identity, on same-sex attraction, on the sanctity of human life in the womb and in end of life. It is very clear. The Bible speaks very clearly to many of these issues. And if you're searching, when you go to the Bible and you're searching, what does it say about this particular thing that I want to do or that I have a desire for? And when you come to that and you realize there is an answer, and let's say it's an answer you weren't expecting, it's saying no, you're based with a question. You're faced with a question. What are you going to do? Because really, there are only two kinds of people in this world. 
There are those who place themselves in a position of authority under, over the Bible, and there are those who place themselves in a position of authority under the Bible. Those who place themselves in a position of authority under the Bible submit to it, receive it, and act on it, even the hard parts that irk us sometimes. And then there are those who place themselves in a position of authority over the Bible. And what they're left doing is squinting. They're left copying, pasting, and taking pieces of the Bible that they agree with and deleting whole sections of the Bible that they don't agree with. And they chalk it up saying, well, that's just a cultural issue that they just had to worry about back then. We do this all the time as Christians. We pick and choose the things we like, and we ignore the things we don't. And when we do that to the clear teaching of God's word, it's sin. It's sin. Because here's the problem with this mindset. This book that you hold before you or is on your iPad or whatever is not a book of recommendations. It wasn't the Ten Suggestions. It's the Ten Commandments. So what does that mean? How do we, what, how do we as Christians make this choice? Well, the question is, first, you've got to check your heart. Why would you choose to want, to want to follow the Bible in the first place? Well, that's a whole other series of questions and a series of messages, sorry. But let me just say this for the moment. Life is hard. Life is complicated. I don't have to convince any of you of that. Life is complicated. And there are some really hard things that you are going to face in your life and you probably have already faced. And you're going to have to figure these things out. And what I've learned over the course of my life so far is I'm really bad at leading myself in life. It's like I need something outside of myself that's bigger than me to show me how life is best lived. Because when I leave it to myself, I don't always make the best decisions that lead me to the most fulfillment. Normally, I leave myself with a mess that I have to clean up. Think of it like this. Imagine you have an object doesn't matter what the object is. Just imagine this object is very sophisticated, very complicated. And that first off, when holding it, you realize, wow, this thing is so complicated. Clearly, the designer of this object is very intelligent, super thoughtful, and super mindful, and had an incredible purpose in mind for this object. I just don't know what that purpose is. So what am I going to do? How am I going to figure it out? I have to talk to the designer. And I have to say, hey, how do you use this thing? Because I don't just want to use 10% of it, because that's all I can figure out. I want to use it to its fullest. Why waste my time with 10%? Hear this, church. The Bible says that God is the author, the creator, the sustainer of all life. Therefore, he knows how life is best to be lived. The scriptures are the blueprints for living a life that is well-ordered, the kind of life that God designed you to live. And when we don't live it, we know it. We feel the lack of peace. We feel the incompleteness. And so because he cares about you, he gives you those blueprints. And now you can order those blueprints on Amazon in a leatherback Bible, right? It's convenient. We, we, I have multiple Bibles, and I'm sure you do too. But what about the times when we find ourselves in the gray areas of life? What about the issues that the Bible doesn't explicitly speak to? What happens when the Bible isn't so clear? Well, there's another question we have to ask, and that's, should I do it? More to the point, what is your conscience telling you 
You say conscience? Yes, Christian, your conscience. What is your conscience telling you? The Bible tells us that every single one of us has the Spirit of God, if we believe in Christ, has the Spirit of God living inside of us, empowering us and guiding us. And as long as you're not living in sin, the Spirit of God will speak and guide you. Now, when you live in sin, willful sin, the Spirit doesn't leave you, but the Spirit is grieved. But when we're living in obedience to God, the Spirit speaks and guides us. And here's where it gets interesting. Because what we find is what convicts my conscience that says, yeah, Aaron, you probably shouldn't do this for a whole host of reasons. May not be the same thing that convicts your conscience. Let's say it this way. Maybe what you think sometimes in these gray areas are sin is not necessarily what I think is sin for my life. Again, now I'm not talking about the clear teaching of God's word. What the word calls sin is sin. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But I'm talking about the areas where the Bible is either silent on or is unclear on. There are many gray areas. So what are we supposed to do with that? Let me just choose a practical example for a moment. Let's just talk about alcohol. Let's get, let's get uncomfortable, right? I have a friend who, who doesn't touch alcohol, not even a drop, because, for two reasons, and none of them have to do primarily with the Bible uh, about it. One is his experience as a kid. When he was growing up, he had two very alcoholic parents. And some of his earliest memories, earliest memories, we're grabbing a blanket as a child and covering up his kids who were stone-cold drunk on the couch, knocked out. What did I say? Oh, okay. That's a whole different story. His parents. His parents, thank you. His parents, stone-cold drunk on the couch. And then he'd go to bed, he'd get himself up, he'd, get, he'd make himself breakfast, he'd walk himself to the bus stop and go to school. His earliest memories. It was a daily routine for him. The other reason is he was, he's afraid. He fears that he has some predisposition towards alcoholism, and rightly so. So he doesn't touch a drop because his conscience says it's something I shouldn't do. But every time in chats with, with him about this, he says, I can't allow my conscience to dictate another Christian's conscience. I won't do that, and I shouldn't do that. Because if I do that, it will become legalistic. In legalism... Uh, uh, breeds disunity. Now, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, if your conscience clears you, that still doesn't mean you should do it. Because there's a third question that you have to ask yourself, and that is, what are my struggles? What are my personal temptations? What are my weaknesses? And here's where you need to be very, very honest with yourself. And if you can't be honest with yourself, you should be in a life group. You should be in part of this church community to a point where you can ask someone and say, hey, I can't be honest with myself. Can you show me where I'm weak? Point it out for me. And if you're married, your wife or husband's just waiting for you to ask that question. Okay? And they can tell you it a lot quicker than someone in your life group can. But be honest with yourself. Let's have some fun with this. Let's talk about tattoos. What does the Bible say about tattoos? Let's ask that first question. What does Scripture say? Well, the New Testament, silent. Crickets on it. The Old Testament says in Leviticus, don't mark your body. But if you read that in context, he's talking about don't mark your body with a pagan God's symbol or a pagan God's name. So if you're planning next weekend to go get a massive picture of Satan on your chest, that's probably a bad idea. Right? A pentagram on your forehead is not a good idea. 
But you need to be asking yourself, okay, the Bible doesn't restrict it. What are my weaknesses in this area? What is my intent? Maybe you come to the honest conclusion, you go, wow, I'm actually struggling. I'm trying to attract attention to myself. And this tattoo is the fruit of that issue. And I want people to accept me, like me. I want attention to me. So I'm finally part of a subgroup that will accept me. And it will bring me peace. If that's the motivation, maybe you should think twice. It all boils down to what's your motivation behind it. What's your heart's intent? I mean, look, there was a time when tattoos were the edgy, rebellious thing to do. You stick it to the man. Do it that way. But that times have changed. And that's no longer the case. They're culturally accepted. So you need to ask yourself, what is my reasoning? But more importantly, what do the scriptures say? Do I have freedom? What is your conscience telling you? What are your weaknesses and what are your struggles? Why are you doing it? It's a matter of your heart. What about piercings? Should Christians get ears pierced or nose pierced or whatever? Maybe you don't know this, but my left ear is pierced because, you know, that was the cool thing to do back then. You couldn't do both like you do now. But uh, I won't say why. But uh, uh, it, it was a no-no, okay? <laughs> but should Christians get their ear pierced, their ear pierced, their nose pierced? I'm sure most ladies in here have earrings. Again, let's ask the first question. What does the scripture say? New Testament, silent. Old Testament, talks about it but does not prohibit it. Actually, it says in Ezekiel, it's very interesting, God says, speaking to his people, I'm going to lavishly love my people and I'm going to bestow gifts on my people. You know what part of those gifts are? He says, I'm going to put uh, a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears. But if your motivation, again, is to gain attention, that it becomes an identity thing for you, then you probably need to think twice about it. Additionally, we need to talk about the full counsel of God here because we have teens in the room. If you are a teen and you are living at home, talk with your parents. And if they say, you know what? No, you have to honor your parents. Because when we don't honor our parents, when we don't respect their wishes, when we are living in their house, that is sin. Some of these things are not as black and white as some of us probably want them to be. And I actually think that is a God thing. I think that's important because it forces us to get to know ourselves and get to know the living God. That we have to search the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures say about this? Secondly, is my conscience clear on this? Asking the question, why am I doing what I am doing? That's a motivation thing. It's a heart issue. But there's one other question we have to ask. And it's the reason why Paul begins this whole conversation in chapter 8 with the virtue of love. It's because everything we do ought to be in awareness of those around us. Which brings us to the fourth question, which is, what do the people around me need from me? How many, how many times do we ask that question? So again, we will use my friend for an example. A Christian who is convicted differently can drink a glass of alcoholic beverage freely and socially should not do so around my friend who has a lot of pain connected with alcoholism. Now, he's mature enough and it doesn't bother him, but we should still respect his past. Again, I know people in here want this command on alcohol to be very black and white. They want me to stand up here and take a very hard line against it, but I can't because the Bible doesn't. It does not condemn the casual drinking of alcohol. But, again, let's ask that first question. What does Scripture say? Because it does limit it. And what does it limit it to? Don't get drunk. And really, that's a bigger picture of don't be mastered by anything else. So if you're getting drunk and you're saying, hey, it's my Christian liberty, you're sinning. 
And if you're the kind of guy who says, I can't go one day without a beer, I'm not getting drunk, but I can't go one day without a beer, you're being mastered by that. And we just talked about that last week. Paul says, don't put yourself under the mastery of anything else because you've been bought with a great price. Don't be mastered by anything. But let's say, having the freedom, having the clear conscience, not having any weaknesses or predispositions, all of your decisions need to be tempered by Christian love. What do the people around me need from me? That's a tremendous mark of maturity when we ask that question because what we have today in our culture is the opposite. We have a bunch of Christians running around saying, I'm free to do this and free to do that any way I want. No, you're actually not. Your freedom is tempered by your love for the people around you and for your love for God. <clears throat> so what does this mean for the people around you in your life, for you to make that decision that you're wanting to make? How will it affect them? Because if it causes them to stumble, then you are in sin. And it's very explicit in Paul's word. His wording is clear. Paul's pressing and he's saying, you're not just sinning against them. You're sinning against Christ. Let's talk about diet. We talked about alcohol, tattoos, piercing. Let's poke at diet. You know, we probably have some vegans or vegetarians here. Personally, God gave me canines. I'm going to rip through meat anytime I can. I'm going to use them. Right? I, I take a steak every day. I sorry, I take a vitamin every day. It's called a steak, right? It's good. But just because I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian doesn't mean I'm going to judge them. We're not going to judge them for, uh, we're not going to judge them for having different convictions than we have. And they shouldn't judge us for different convictions that we have because that's counterproductive. And when we try to superimpose our convictions that are personal and not laid out in Scripture on other believers, that breeds legalism and disunity. What else can I mess with? Here's one that we all agree on. I'm sure nobody's going to disagree on this. Politics. I'm sure everyone can talk about that rationally here. Who should you vote for, Christian? Well, you need to make an informed decision. You should know exactly where that candidate stands on any particular issue. Additionally, understand that some of those issues are going to be theological. For example, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's a theological issue. But you have to also remember, until Jesus ushers in his kingdom, and he's ruling and reigning us, and everything has been cast into the sea and gone, we are voting for an imperfect human who is going to make grave mistakes and let you down. So here's what you need to do. You need to do your research. You need to vote for the candidate that best aligns with the moral teaching of God's word. Why? Because anywhere where the moral teaching of God's word is applied in society, those people in that society will be led well and will be blessed. But what we can never do is let politics divide us or divide this church. I know great Christian people who vote differently than me. I don't know how they get there. But they do. And I respect them and I love them and I have fellowship with them. Let's not let politics divide us. I think we touched on enough. I could just keep going and going on different subjects. But here's the deal. At fellowship, we're not going to create a list of yeses and nos, do's and don'ts. Because here's what happens when a church creates a list. You know what's at the top of the list? Things like piercing, tattoos, alcohol, whatever. You know what doesn't make the list? The dude that overexercises because he's avoiding his family. The person who's running around being a busybody in the church and gossiping. The one who's telling white lies the people who have a love of money, and so on and so forth. Because here's the deal. Someone might be able to say no to this, but they can't say no to that. I have no temptation to steal. I can walk into a store, and I don't have to fight the urge to steal something. It does, it's not my temptation. But you know what I do? 
have to be cautious about is my generosity. I struggle in generosity. And that's a form of stealing. And I struggle. And I have to put intentional efforts there to be generous. We don't want to make a list because what happens is when churches start making lists, it just grows legalism. Now again, the scriptures do give us lists. And we are to follow those lists. They are clear. And there's no wiggle room in there. But what I'm getting at is we don't superimpose our convictions in areas that are not explicitly laid out in Scripture on other believers. Because that's the knowledge that Paul is talking about that just puffs us up. Look at me. I'm keeping the list. And I'm adding some to my list too. Just to make sure I'm more holy. I'm keeping everything. But Paul's pointing us to the love that builds up the church. The community around you. So why am I asking all these questions? Why am I making us think through this, uh, these subjects? It's because what we need to do is we need to have a realignment of our rights that bend towards love. We need to ask the question, how can we rightly exercise our rights? Christians are able, first and foremost, this is your foundation as a believer. You are able to enjoy freedom because somebody else sacrificed his freedom on your behalf. Your rights are the result of Christ laying aside his claim to any and all of his rights. Our liberties are ours because our stronger brother, Jesus, gave up his liberties to secure the liberties for his weaker brother, which is you and me. A true knowledge of the gospel recognizes two things. First, it recognizes that our privileges that we have are shared privileges. They're shared. Verse 11 it says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Christ died, did not die to save the solitary individual. He died for his bride. To, to, he died for his collective people, for his church. Rights are never exercised as a Christian in isolation because they are always have the bearing on those around us. We never miss, we should never miss the social, uh, sociological implications of the cross. See, the question isn't what can I do and what can I not do? That's the wrong question. The question should be is how do I serve those around me and how do I live a life that makes the gospel compelling to those people? Secondly, it recognizes that a lack for, of care for Christ's bride is a lack of care for Christ. When one sins against one's brother, he sins against Christ. Remember verse 12 where it says, Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Jesus is teaching that, that, that is whatever is done to the least of these has also been done to me in Matthew 25, 40, does not only apply to those outside the church. It also applies to those inside the church as well. How do we know whether or not that we recognize these deep implications of the cross? Well, first, we realize that when we are able to give up and willing to give up our rights for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters. To the degree that we are laying down our life and that we're sacrificing our rights for the weaker brother. To the degree that we are, and when we do that, to that degree, we are understanding Paul's application of the gospel. Look how he ended it. That is not right, I don't think. 13. Oh, okay, I don't know where 13 was. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We are only free 
if we can set aside our freedoms for the sake of others. It's not a question of what can I get away with? How close can I get to the line? It's a question of how best can I use my liberties that Jesus purchased for me for the sake of others, for the person sitting next to me in this room today. Our unity is meant to reflect the unity of the Godhead. As, as, as verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All things are ours in Christ. Therefore, all things are meant to be used in service and to worship of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel of Jesus tells us that we are so free that we can give of our rights for the sake of others. Our identity is not bound up in self-expression. It is bound up in, it's bound up in the self-expression of a God who is characterized by self-giving love. Jesus, the Son, voluntarily, he, 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 there in his life, in his example, there was voluntary self-renunciation, self-abasement. The most entitled person in the universe, in a good way, gave up his rights for us, for you, for me. And that is powerful. So let me close by asking this question. What is God impressing upon your heart right now? Is there a blatant command in Scripture that you know you have been ignoring? And he's pressing in on you today. Is there an issue of conscience in these gray areas of life that now, thinking on it, you're feeling your conscience is speaking to you more clearly? And maybe you've realized, hey, I'm in this for the wrong reason. Jesus is pressing in on you right now. It's time to repent and to orientate our life in the way that Christ has laid out for us in Scripture. That's the beautiful thing about our Savior, is that He's faithful when we are not. So when we make these mistakes, He doesn't kick you out of the family. He wants to make you a better, per, a better follower of Christ by correcting these things and strengthening these things so that you can say like Paul in weeks to come, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this direction that Paul is taking us in your word that you have inspired, O oh God. As we wrestle for the next few weeks, O oh God, on the subject of what can we do? How do I exercise my rights? How do I love my neighbor? God, would you lead and guide us? Father, would you show us, would you speak to us through your word, God? Would you illuminate it into our hearts and into our minds, Father, the, the areas that we need clarity on? Father, be it that we're ignoring a blatant command of yours, or God, that we have been suppressing what you have been poking our conscience at in these gray areas. Father, give us the strength to repent. Give us the strength to turn our life in, in this area around, God, and put it on a, a trajectory, Lord, that Glory, brings glory and honor to your name and builds up in love the people around us. Father, may Fellowship Baptist Church be that church, a church that loves the one sitting next to them, the church that is thinking through their decisions and how it might affect those who come and serve you in this local body, O oh God. May we be mindful and may we commit to building each other up in love. In Jesus' name, amen.